Thank you, church. You may be seated. It is wonderful to be with you again this Lord's Day morning. Amen. Amen. We have all been through the ringer. <laughs> the Lord has taken us through fiery trials of various kinds. But it is good to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. As you turn there, we'll be in verse 31, making our way through verse 34. If you've not been with us recently, we have been in a study of the book of 1 Peter. And we are in chapter 2 of 1 Peter verse 9. That text says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, set apart for him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, today we're going to be looking at the third phrase in that section of 1 Peter 2, 9. And that is the holy nation. God's people are God's heralds. God's people are God's heralds. He called and set us apart so that we could perform a task for him. And that was to proclaim his excellencies. And so we want to know, well, who are God's people? In order to proclaim his excellencies well, we need to first know who we are in Christ. And today we're going to be looking at a holy nation, at a holy nation. So let's look at Jeremiah 31 today and understand this holy nation that we comprise. Beginning in verse 31, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on this time. Father, as I stand before you, these, your people are hungry for your truth. They are hungry for your word, and it is only you that can give it. By your Holy Spirit this morning, would you fill this room with the knowledge of the Lord? Would you put the knowledge and understanding of who we, as the bride of Christ, who we are as we comprise a holy nation. What does that mean? Help us to understand how then we collectively 
are to go out and proclaim your excellencies. How we're to be your heralds, proclaiming the truth of your gospel. All of this we ask that you do by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew Henry said, All Christians, wheresoever they be, compose one holy nation. They are one nation collected under one head, agreeing in the same manners and customs and governed by the same laws. They are a holy nation being consecrated and devoted to God and renewed and sanctified by his Holy Spirit. Well, Matthew Henry is right. And what we see in the text this morning are exactly those four things. We see four things that make up distinctives of what a holy nation is. What are the characteristics of a holy nation? Number one, a holy nation is in covenant together. If you like outlines, number one, a holy nation is in covenant together. Number two, a holy nation has laws. It has rules, guiding principles that direct it in its affairs. Number three, a holy nation has a God and a king. And lastly, number four, contrary to what some politicians may think, a holy nation has borders. There are certain people that are in the nation and certain people that are not in the nation. Holy nation is comprised of a holy citizenship. Well, we're going to begin with verse 31 in Jeremiah chapter 31, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This new covenant that God would make comprises the covenant agreement, the structure for our holy nation. This is the agreement that holds all of us as the people of Jesus together. And the covenants in Scripture, as those of you who went to the conference this last week, are vitally important to understanding the greater meta-narrative that tells the whole story of the Bible. God tells his story of the Scripture through the unfolding of covenants. Several months ago at uh, Basswood Church, Matt Hudson took the men on Friday morning through a helpful book at Theology Breakfast, the Friday morning men's Theology Breakfast, called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants by a guy, a group of men, uh, Kenneth Gentry and Stephen Wellam. Um, they write a book on God's covenants and how God's covenants tell the greater story of the Bible. They say one cannot fully understand Scripture and correctly draw theological conclusions from it without grasping how all of the biblical covenants unfold across time and find their telos, their terminus, and their fulfillment in the main character of Scripture, and that is Jesus Christ. They say, we do not assert that the covenants are the central theme of Scripture. No, that's reserved for our Lord Jesus. Instead, we assert that the covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta-narrative, and thus, it is essential to put them together correctly in order to discern accurately the whole counsel of God 
And that is from Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. What is a covenant? A covenant is also defined in that same book as an enduring agreement which defines a relationship between two parties involving a solemn binding obligation or obligations specified on the part of at least one of the parties towards the other. This is made by oath under the threat of divine curse and ratified by a visual ritual. You might consider a marriage ceremony, a covenant ceremony, for that is exactly what it is, where two parties are coming together to bind themselves in a holy covenant and agreement together. You might consider that when a couple binds itself together, when the couple binds themselves together in that marriage covenant, they are seeking blessings together. They are also asking God to bring judgment if they are not faithful to keep their covenant promises and vows to one another. Well, what are the major covenants in Scripture? We have at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1 through 3, God's unfolding of what is called the covenant of creation. It's also called the covenant of works. This was made with Adam in the garden in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In Genesis 6 to 9, which we'll begin reading next week in our public reading of Scripture, God begins a covenant relationship with the family of Noah from which we are all descended. God then makes a covenant beginning in Genesis 12 and going all the way through Genesis 22 with Abraham. That is the covenant of circumcision, the covenant of faith. God begins or continues his covenant-making promises with the people at Sinai. This is what's often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. We read from the last time I preached several weeks ago in Exodus 19. God makes a covenant with David the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and this covenant is reaffirmed again in Psalm 89. And then today, where we are in Jeremiah chapter 31 with the new covenant. This new covenant is spoken of very frequently in the Old Testament. It's also promised in Isaiah 54 and Ezekiel 33 through 38. The Bible is divided up by covenants. If you've noticed, your Bible has two main sections in it. It has an Old Testament and a New Testament. And as we heard this last weekend, Testament is just another word for covenant. Now, hopefully you see at the beginning of our text here how important the covenant structure of Scripture is and how vitally important covenants are for us understanding how we as the people of God, relate to God. When is the last time that you considered the fact that the new covenant defines your relationship to God? It might be the last time, if you're a married person, you thought about your marriage vows and your marriage covenant with your spouse and how that covenant, those words that you shared on the day when you were wed to your spouse, define the relationship. They define the relationship between you and the person to which you're married. God takes covenants extremely seriously. He takes covenants extremely seriously. He made a covenant with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. When they failed to keep it, 
he brought curse upon curse upon curse after them, giving them opportunities again and again to repent. And yet they could never fulfill the covenant. There was a covenant reaffirmed with the Davidic king, King David, who was just a type of the one who was to come because Jesus, the true Davidic king, did come and he did fulfill all of Moses and all the righteousness from Moses and from the law, what was required of God's people Israel, Jesus fulfilled. And when you became a Christian, all of that righteousness was credited to your account. Hallelujah. That's right. Amen. Hallelujah. Every ounce of righteousness in me came from Jesus's obedience. It came from Jesus's obedience. When God looks on his people that he is in new covenant relationship, he sees, and I'll skip to the end of the passage, he sees, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more because he sees the work of Christ on our behalf. He took our sin and laid it on Christ. Christ stood in our place as the covenant breaker. Christ stood in our place as the covenant breaker, taking the punishment for all of our sin and giving us all of his righteousness. Brethren, covenants are vitally important to God. They are vitally important to God. And today, you relate to God through Jesus Christ in terms of a covenant. And that is the new covenant. The great and everlasting covenant. The covenant of peace, it's called in the scriptures. This is the relationship that we have to our God. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. This is a, an extended section. This gives you an idea of the importance of covenants to God and even our being submissive and obedient to God in the new covenant. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is and has been the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There is no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Anyone who breaks Moses, two or three witnesses is enough to condemn them. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant 
by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. If you are in the new covenant today, that text ought to perform one work in your heart. It ought to grip you and draw you to Jesus. It ought to warn our hearts to the place where we say, no, never. I could never break this covenant with my Lord. I am wed to Christ. I will never leave him. That's what that text ought to produce in your heart. It ought to draw us nigh unto Christ. So can I encourage you, consider the new covenant that you are in and what it means for you to be a faithful new covenant member, new covenant follower of Jesus. I would also encourage you to to think about the other covenants you're in. Have you considered recently your marriage vows, those of you who are married? When is the last time you thought about what you promised to your spouse? Do you take that seriously? Because God does. We heard this last weekend from Malachi, how seriously God takes the marriage covenant. Now he was speaking to the wicked priests and rulers of Israel, but he takes our vows before him to one another very seriously. Have you considered the covenants that you're in? Several weeks ago when we planted this church and I saw several people looking over their church covenant. Now it's the same covenant that we brought from Basswood. So we have a, an identical covenant with them. We like that covenant so much that we decided that we would adopt it as part of Christ the King. But I saw several brothers reading over each line of that covenant. And I said, do you remember that this is the same one? And they said, yes, but I like to remind myself what I'm covenanting. I like to remind myself what I'm covenanting. Have you considered your church covenant? This may be beyond what you want to consider, but I know several who have actually gotten a copy of the church covenant and have put it in a frame in their house. And as they walk by, they will consider the lines that they've covenanted, the promises that they've made to the body here locally. Would you consider the covenants that you're in and the significance of those covenants? Because as a holy nation, we are in covenant together. And God takes his covenants very seriously. Well, if you'll go on down to verse 33, what are the distinctives of this covenant? We are in a new covenant, but tell me, Chris, a little bit about that covenant. What is it? What what makes up that new covenant? The Lord says in Jeremiah, verse 32, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their their husband, declares the Lord. Whatever this new covenant is, it is going to be distinctively different from the old covenant. And the old covenant that he's referring to here is the covenant at Sinai, the covenant with Moses called the Mosaic Covenant. Whatever new covenant God is going to make with his people, it will be different in many ways from that old covenant. And we find out here how different it is going to be. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. 
and I will write it on their hearts. Now you remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he received the law of the covenant. At every, the beginning of every covenant, at the inauguration of every covenant, there is a law structure given. Adam was given a covenant to care for the garden. God said, I'm covenanting with you over all of creation. I need you to care for this. But he gave him a rule. He said, don't eat from that tree. One law. Doug Wilson says it's the garden of a thousand yeses and one no, right? There was a law though. Don't eat from that tree. With Noah and the covenant that God made when he got off the boat, God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with all of creation. And that covenant is that man's blood and the image of God in man is precious. And if anyone sheds man's blood, then that, that one's blood will be shed as well. It was the covenant of capital punishment. That was the law of the Noahic covenant. He even says that animals, from animals, he will require a reckoning for the shedding of man's blood. With Abraham, he gave the law of circumcision and the rule for entering into that covenant community through circumcision. And with the Davidic covenant, it's reaffirmed that David would have to keep the law of Moses since the people of Israel could not. Psalm 89. But here for us, for those in the new covenant, for the holy nation, the law that would be given for the holy nation isn't going to be an external law. It's not going to be written down on tablets of stone. God says, instead, I'm going to write it on the hearts of my people. Now, what does that mean? When we get into topics and discussions of how Christians relate to the law in the Pentateuch, there can be a tremendous amount of confusion. And so in order to help you understand what Jeremy and I have agreed as elders to teach here at Christ the King, I want to read several points from our statement of faith. We have a, a rather lengthy statement of faith. We wanted to share with people as many details as we could about what you would hear from the pulpits. There would be no surprises. This is from, I believe it's section 20 on the law. These are things that we must consider as we see what God did as he brought us into the new covenant and wrote the law on our hearts. I'll read through these as quickly as I can. This is somewhat lengthy, but bear with me. Throughout the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments, God expresses his will for man through laws, commandments, statutes, and rules. Jesus taught that the first and greatest commandment given in the law is to love God with all the heart, soul, and mind. And the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments are the basis for all the commandments found in the law and the prophets. All these commandments shall stand until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus, hear me church, did not come to abolish or relax them. Whatever we do with Moses, we don't get away with saying, well, it doesn't apply anymore. Jesus did not come to abolish or relax those laws. 
Though God's commandments must not be relaxed, they must, however, be interpreted in light of the New Testament revelation of Jesus and his apostles who gave fuller, richer, and deeper expression to the righteous requirements of God's law. When the Son of God came into this world, he did not lighten the demands of the law in the least. Rather, as a man, the Son of God came fully under the authority of the law. And being under the law, Jesus Christ honored his Father's law by fulfilling all righteousness and pleasing his Father always. And to crown his obedience, Jesus became obedient to the point of death on a cross and there took the curse of the law upon himself. This he did to redeem those who are under the law and its curse, that all their lawless deeds may be forgiven. Now, oh, such good news. All who trust Jesus Christ are no longer under the law and its curse, but are under the grace of God. The Christian is considered dead to the law and married to Christ, direct quotation from Romans 7. This is not to say that the Christian becomes lawless, which is interesting, by the way, because that's exactly what the people were asking Paul about his teachings on the law. So you're saying we're just not under a law anymore? We're under grace? We can do whatever we want? This is not to say that the Christian becomes lawless. Rather, just the opposite is true. By the Spirit's mighty working, the Christian is the only one who actually does fulfill the law. As a pattern of life, the Christian is no longer held captive by a law he does not want to keep, but rather he serves in the freedom of the Spirit, keeping the commandments of God from the heart. There it is. God wrote the law on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Although the laws and commandments of Scripture are profitable to the Christian for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, Amen. You will hear us preach at Christ the King, the law of the Pentateuch to you as authoritative. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Yet the Christian will never find the power for fulfilling the law in the law itself, but must look to Christ in faith for the power to grow in his image. So looking to Christ in faith never overthrows the law. Rather, it unleashes the life-transforming power to keep the law. Jesus Christ is the Christian's ultimate standard of righteousness. Jesus Christ is the Christian's ultimate standard of righteousness. So what is this law that he wrote on our hearts? When you became a Christian... Did God begin to write 613 commandments of the Mosaic Code on your heart? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Jesus teaches us that there's a pin that if you were going to hang the law of Moses on a wall, there's one pin that will hold it up. Love of God, love of neighbor. Love of God, love of neighbor. And this is exactly what he commanded us at the inauguration of the new covenant. I told you at the beginning of a covenant, God gives laws. He gives a commandment. 
He gives a rule and a statute, and this is the law for his holy nation. Within the same breath that Jesus lifted the cup at the Last Supper and says, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Within the same breath in John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. Now, I don't know how you read that. You might look at that and say, oh, Jesus is giving us one more commandment. He's giving us one more rule to follow. I gotta, I, that's another one I need to make sure that, oh, Jesus gave us a, a new commandment. Or is he giving us the standard and rule for the new covenant by which, if we keep it, we fulfill all of the law? Listen to what he says. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Hear what he says there, church. As I have loved you. The ultimate standard of Christian righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate standard for us as Christians is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't hear that in any way diminishing the law of Moses. Well, it sounds like we're just going to shove it to the side. We're going to ignore it. No. Who obeyed Moses perfectly? Jesus did. Who sets the example for us for how to understand Moses? Jesus does. Who rightly unfolded Moses to us, revealing to us that it is not an external standard on the outside, but it is something that reaches into even the deepest places of the heart. Jesus does. By the way, Paul says the same thing in just a slightly different way. He says in Romans 13, very popular passage today, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul tells us again in Romans 5 that we have no reason to be ashamed of our sufferings because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brethren, when you became a Christian, I don't know what your experience was, and some people have an experience of, well, I'm not exactly sure when it was. I remember becoming a Christian, and I remember one of the first things that people began to say about me as, Chris, you're different now. I remember my high school friends, I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. I remember my high school friends saying things to me like, dude, you're nice now. You're not mean anymore, <laughs> right? What is that? It's the very God of the universe through the Holy Spirit writing Christ all across my heart, showing me Jesus, showing me perfect righteousness, 
my eyes fixed on Christ. And I see how to honor God in perfect righteousness by keeping my eyes on Christ. You might think of it this way. Under Moses, you had a demand structure. Law was given and it made demands on us. Demand, demand, demand. You must do this and you will live. If you don't, you will die. But in the new covenant, it's no longer demand, it's supply. All that I have needed, thy hand has provided. He supplies the power for our obedience to him that is pleasing and brings glory to his name. How does all the world know that we are the disciples and followers of Jesus by our love for one another? Loving like Christ, walking as he walked, this is the law of the holy nation. I'm not talking about the law that we take to the city council when we advocate for the unborn. They need to be convicted. They need God's word to make demands on them that they cannot meet. Because outside of Christ, they need to know that they are hopeless and lost. And they need Jesus. So we go right up before them and we say, God said you can't murder. But when I tell them God said that they can't murder, I am reaffirming everything I believe about the new covenant law. Why can't they murder? Because that's not love. Because to love that child in the womb is not to kill it. If I was going to become, or as Jeremy's talked about and thought about perhaps running for a public office, city council or something like that, what are we going to do? We're going to bring God's word to bear on the laws of our nation. Because we need a standard by which we can understand how to operate as a society with both Christians and non-Christians. But the holy nation of Jesus has a law. As I have loved you, so love one another. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, here in this holy nation, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now I want you to imagine for just a minute that you're a Gentile convert to Christianity at a church in Colossae. And in walks a Scythian. Well, who are the Scythians? Scythians are a nomadic tribe, a people from modern-day Russia. Their name literally means rude and rough. They were regarded in that day as the wildest of barbarians. In fact, I'm told that Attila the Hun, in order to beef up his name and get a bunch of credit with those around him, got Scythians to be a part of his army because people would be like, oh, man, he's got Scythians. Ugh. Now imagine if a Scythian came into the church in Colossae in which you are a new convert and sat down and heard the preaching of the gospel and was converted. 
They believed in Jesus. They now become a part of the same holy nation as you. And as you turn around and you watch this miracle unfold, you remember that just weeks before, that Scythian and his tribe came through your village and burned everything and raped and pillaged and plundered. I would ask you, church, what is your obligation to this new believer now that they are in Christ? How do you fulfill all righteousness? The answer is simple, the same way Jesus did when you walked in and the gospel was preached to you and he opened his arms and welcomed you into his family. Because you murdered Jesus with your sin. You put him on that cross. And as you repented by faith coming to him, he welcomed you in to his holy nation, to his chosen race, to be a part of his royal family and his priesthood. The law of the holy nation of God is to love as Christ loves. Well, also, a holy nation, we see here in the text, has a God and a king. He says at the end of verse 33, I will be their God. They shall be my people. The holy nation has one God and one king. The first of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. But Israel had many other gods. In the new covenant, he said, no, I will be their God. He did not say, we will be their God. That would be polytheism. He did not say, I might be their God, as though it's conditional. He did not say, I will be a handful of this people's God, as though it's selective, our choice. He did not say, I will be their buddy, I will be their friend, I will be their companion, I'll be their doctor, I'll be their happy thought, I'll be their warm feeling, I'll be one of their priorities. He said that he will be our God. And he is commanding our absolute devotion to him in worship. Psalm 2 says, as for me, the Lord God, Yahweh says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He established a monarch to rule his holy nation. Webster's 1828 dictionary says, a prince or ruler of a nation, this is what an absolute monarch is, the prince or ruler of a nation who exercises all the powers of government without controls or who is vested with absolute sovereign power, an emperor, king, or prince, invested with unlimited power. And this is King Jesus. And this is what he's been given as king over his holy nation. I read to you from Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In John chapter 12, John tells us 
that Isaiah saw the day of Jesus. And if you look at the language in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words are identical. Isaiah saw Jesus sitting on that throne. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, he saw King Jesus enthroned. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given, here it is, church, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Hear this, church. Jesus has dominion. That is a rulership or an empire. He has glory, which is honor and esteem. He owns this kingdom, and all peoples will one day serve him. Whatever your eschatology is, it better end right there. Jesus will rule the nations. He will rule all. Matthew 28, verse 18, a passage we're all familiar with. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Every last single piece of authority over this world, even what's going on right now in Afghanistan, the authority for that belongs to Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 1, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness to the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Church, there is no one higher in the holy nation than Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings, and he demands our absolute obedience. You know, other than Chad and Lisa, I don't know that anybody in this building has ever lived under a dictator. I don't know that anyone has lived under an absolute monarch. We live in the United States in a republic where people represent us, and if we don't like them, we vote them out. Heard a really good talk about that this last week. There's some people that need to be voted out right now. Praise God. We live in a representative country where we can vote these folks out. It does not work that way with Jesus. It doesn't work that way. But how often does the church of Jesus pick and choose what they like in his word? What they want to obey and what they don't want to obey. I told you just a minute ago that the law of God, Jesus didn't come to relax it. He didn't say your righteousness needs to match that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He said it has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
I would encourage you, church, as you read through the scriptures this week, as you hear what God's word says, remember that you have an absolute monarch over you who demands your obedience to every jot and tittle, every least stroke of the pen in the word of God. Our obedience is required for all of it. And it is because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Heard a little bit this last week about mutual submission in marriage. And how in Ephesians chapter 5, men are commanded and women are commanded to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But that verse is often misinterpreted. And we hear men submit to your wives in the same way that wives should submit to their husbands. That's not at all what Jesus is teaching. He does teach submission. And then Paul tells us what it looks like. He says that the church is a picture of submission to Christ. In the same way, wives, you have to submit in everything to your husbands. Just like the church submits to Jesus. Ladies, how's that going? Everything. Everything. There's not one thing that you're not required to submit to. Now, but, but what if he leads me after other gods? Then you must follow God and obey God rather than men. But Elizabeth Elliot has a helpful saying, submission for the wife in the home doesn't come when she's eager and in agreement with her husband. She doesn't have to submit then because she already agrees. Submission comes when she disagrees. If I was to say that a husband could demand of a wife the worship of another God, we would all agree she's not allowed to do that. She must obey God. But if the husband says, I would like our home to be vacuumed every day of the week, people's hair would get lit on fire. What are you talking about? What kind of man would make his wife vacuum the house every single day? Brethren, I would, I would encourage you with this. Feminism has infected us far more than we realize. It has. It has infected us far more than we realize. And really, vacuuming the house every day of the week isn't that big of a deal. It's not. And ladies, what power... You show what love you show your husband when you do it with joy, right? And, and then husbands, you're commanded to love as Christ loved, right? You're commanded to love as Christ loved. And God holding us to covenant obligations. If we're not submitting to even these marriage covenants, how does that affect our children? Does it trickle down covenantally in our homes? Yes, it does. It does. It affects generations into the future because of our covenant disobediences. It affects the relationship between the husband and the wife when there's disagreement and infighting. It affects the relationship between the husband and his God. I would also say between the wife and her God. When there is not this obedience to this covenant and there's fighting going on, God says he won't hear our prayers. Jesus demands our absolute obedience. And with our obedience, he 
he pours out his covenant blessings on us. And how often our Savior, even seeing us in our sin, in our infighting, in our own home, in his grace, gives us time and still pours out his covenant blessings on us. What a marvelous Savior. Last but not least, as we close, a holy nation is made up of a particular people. A holy nation is made up of a particular kind of people. In verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest declares the Lord. This is the bottom line for why I'm a Baptist. I cannot apologize for this statement right here. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. There's nobody in the new covenant that we go around to and we say, no, wait, hang on. You're in the new covenant, but do you know the Lord? It doesn't work that way. He said, this covenant that I'm making isn't going to be like the previous covenant where you can be in the covenant community, but really not be a worshiper of Yahweh. It doesn't work that way. In the new covenant, every one of the holy people of God knows the Lord. We won't evangelize each other. We all know our God, and that's knowing him in a saving relationship. All of God's holy people in his holy nation are completely <coughs> and forever forgiven. Let me say that again. All of the holy people of God's holy nation are all completely and forever forgiven. Children, I have spoken to you the last two times that I preached. And I'm not going to make a habit of speak to the children every time. But let me... Children, hear this. This is important for you. Right now, you are in a building with people who are a part of a new covenant, who will spend an eternity with Jesus. But you will not walk into heaven holding mommy and daddy's hand. It doesn't work that way. Mommy and daddy, you see, they pray over dinner. And maybe they sing around the house the praises of Jesus. And they read to you the Bible because they love Jesus. But none of that gets you into heaven. None of it does. In order to be a part of this new covenant community, this holy nation, in order to come to this table and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you must know the Lord. You must know him. And mommy and daddy can't get you there. We can show you the way. We can point you in the way that you should go. But until you have dealt seriously with your sin, you have acknowledged it for what it is, the thing that is so tightly bound to you, and you could never remove it from yourself no matter how hard you try. Like Eustace and... The voyage of the dawn treader when he was turned into a dragon and he tried to peel that dragon skin off himself over and over and over again. 
and all he got was more dragon skin. He could never get the dragon out of his heart, right? Lewis was a Calvinist. He was. Children, you will never get the sin out of your heart. There is only one who can take it away, and that is Jesus. And that is Jesus. And so today, I challenge even the littlest ones here, because he says, look at this promise. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Jesus can do a miracle in the heart of the least, as well as a miracle in the heart of the greatest. He is building his holy nation, church. He is assimilating and putting together his holy nation to go out and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's putting this holy nation together. But Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man or woman or elderly person or child No least, no greatest comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. So church today, consider yourself a member of the new covenant. And consider how significant that is. Consider the law to which God has called you. The highest standard imaginable to live like Christ. And consider how through his Holy Spirit, he empowers us looking to Christ for perfect obedience. Consider that Jesus is king and that your obedience is demanded of you because Jesus is king. And consider the holy nation and that it is made up of born-again believers who are forever and finally forgiven and will never have to worry about their sins anymore. They have been cast into the furthest parts of the sea. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word and the promises that you make seem absolutely unbelievable. But Lord, we are here looking each of these promises, looking into them as deeply as we can because we must be a people who go out into the world having believed your promise about what you've said about us. That we are a chosen race. That we are king priests in Jesus' family. That we comprise a holy nation, a nation that is set apart for good works. And next week, by your grace, as we look to a people that you possess for your own purposes and what it means to be put in the palms of the hands of the God of the universe and completely releasing ourselves to his control. Father, we remember that in the palms of your hands, we too, at that same time, can see the nail wounds that secured our salvation. And we can trust you. So as we celebrate this meal together over the next few minutes, would you turn our eyes towards Christ, helping us to remember that all we have needed, your hand has provided. 
that everything that was demanded of us under the old code, you supply through your Holy Spirit in the new covenant. And help us to be that new covenant nation of people who this week even will go out and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.